Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. It's the show that brings you the five most compelling stories in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we are joined by New Scientist reporters Adam Vaughan and Matt Sparks. Hello both. Good morning. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we have the latest on long COVID. Uh, we're going to hear about what Alan Turing did after solving the Enigma code in the war. And we have a new record for quantum encrypted communication. Yay! <laughs> We're also hearing about how cooperation is at least as strong a force in evolution as competition. And we've got news of possible alien worlds that could be watching us from afar. First, we start with a look at our latest understanding of long COVID, which Estimates are still a bit rough, but we believe affects about 14% of people who catch COVID, meaning they end up with lasting symptoms. And so that means that at least some 25 million people worldwide will have long COVID. Yes. And a new study of adults in England found that one in 20 had persistent symptoms and that people with long COVID can be divided into four groups. So those experiencing the after effects of ventilation in intensive care those with organ damage caused by the virus, those with post-viral fatigue syndrome, and a miscellaneous group that the authors of the study call those with long-term COVID syndrome. Adam, you went on an outing this week related to this. Can you tell us about that? I was lucky enough to get to go to University College London Hospital, where they have one of the UK's first long, well, it was in fact the first long COVID clinic in the UK. And there's now about 83 of these around England. So I went there to talk to the, um, you know, the staff who are working there and to meet some of the people who've been affected by long COVID. What do we know about it, really? Because it seems that, you know, we're still getting to grips with this. And there's a whole constellation of symptoms. And they seem to be, you know, exactly what symptoms uh, count as long COVID seems to be shifting. Yeah, I mean, there's probably more we don't know about long COVID than we do. Um, we're still getting to grips with the sort of mechanistic, you know, what's actually going on side of it. And on the treatment side of it, you know, on helping people, one of the um, doctors I met, um, Toby Hillman, said, you know, there is no magic cure for long COVID at the moment. You know, his colleague, um, Melissa Heitman there at UCLH, she she said the focus really is on managing symptoms at the moment because that's that's what they can do. 
well, what's interesting actually, they see they get such a wide range of symptoms there, of physical symptoms from long COVID. But the two big ones, which you might be familiar with, are the breathlessness and the fatigue. Those seem to be the two sort of predominant ones. There's only so much you can do about those. But on on the breathlessness side, you know, I was talking to uh, the physios and the occupational therapists there, and it's really what seems like incredibly basic sounding stuff, like relearning how to breathe properly. So they found a lot of people with long COVID are breathing with their chest so they are then trying to teach those people to relearn to breathe more with their diaphragm and they're finding that people are breathing through their mouth rather than their nose so again that it's just about giving them some exercises to try and retrain them so it's just really making a conscious effort to for something that we all do unconsciously and then the on the fatigue side it's more around what they call pacing and sort of treating your um energy as, as a finite budget and a couple of the patients i spoke to had said that had been just incredibly helpful as a way to think about um, approaching it. One thing that um, we've reported on uh, that may be surprising to a lot of people is that those who are most prone to um, suffering long COVID symptoms aren't necessarily those who actually get most sick from the initial infection. So it seems like the biggest risk factor for death from COVID is older age with men being more likely to be admitted to hospital than women. But with long COVID, women are 30% more likely to get it than men and 35 to 69 year olds are the age group most often affected. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about the clinic and what's going on there? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of reassurance. There's a lot of investigation. And I think quite important, one of the sort of recurring themes that came through was that some of the people I spoke to had had their sort of symptoms dismissed by people, you know, elsewhere, you know, one of the women she'd been to see a cardiologist somewhere at another hospital been told she had no heart problems at all and it turned out she did actually and it was to do with long covid that she didn't really get that taken seriously until she came to the long covid clinic so i think it's another important aspect of it is the the mental health side of it which it's, it's not a it is a physiological um, condition not a psychological one but the those physical effects are so debilitating that it takes a real mental toll so but an important part of the clinic is as well the psychological support they offer people yeah, there was that bit in your piece, Adam, where um, one of the women you spoke to said, you know, the relief that she felt and the the reassurance and the empowering nature of of just being understood there by yeah. by them, and and the the help that that brings to people so just by just by being there to to guide them through it. I mean, that really what did seem huge to people. I mean, yeah, there was one woman I spoke to. You know, she'd gone through months of trying to get help elsewhere and then she'd finally got through to Melissa Heitman at this clinic uh, had a phone call before Christmas and and ended up speaking for about 40 minutes with her and as she said you know and she's quite you know it's not this is a you know woman who's like had a very demanding high sort of <laughs> energy life before she said you know she just burst into tears when she spoke to Heitman because it was the first time someone was just listening um was actually saying you know was not trying to dismiss it as some sort of overreaction or, or blaming something else. And and, and and the couple of the um therapists I spoke to, you know, they said a lot of what they do is about reassuring people. And the thing is, that's really important because if people don't, you can really get the response to long COVID wrong. A lot of people, in fact, one of the patients I spoke to, you know, they, they try to kind of like, let's push through and just like, let's push through the fatigue and try and get through the other side by just carrying on. And that actually makes it, that actually makes it worse. That comes down to profiling what sort of type of long COVID people have got, because it turns out there seems to be lots of these different ones. So, you know, so-called graded exercise might be quite useful for people who mainly got breathlessness, but not so useful for people who've got more of the sort of fatiguey uh, long COVID. Yeah. 
And the WHO, the World Health Organization, are working, aren't they, to agree a definition, a clinical definition of the post-COVID-19 conditions, so long COVID. And once we get that definition, that's a kind of official definition. And with clinics like this that you're talking about and growing understanding and kind of acceptance that it is a thing, then hopefully we can be able, there'll be more uh, help for all these people who are suffering from it. Now, on Wednesday, it was Alan Turing Day. June 23rd is his birthday, and to mark the day, the Bank of England has released a new £50 note featuring him. So this is great news in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, uh, especially if I get lots of these £50 notes uh, (laughs) in my wallet. Uh, Turing, of course, was one of the greatest and most influential figures of the 20th century, and his work not just setting the foundation for all of modern computing. I um, mean, you know, he, he invented the computer in 1936. There's also the work he did at Bletchley Park during the war, where he developed a way to break the German Enigma code. And that allowed the British to read German military secrets. And that's said to have shortened the war and saved millions of lives. And after that, he designed a procedure which became known as the Turing test, which is to determine whether a machine could convincingly imitate human conversation. Yeah, and we also have to thank him for all the stories that we've since been able to write about that in New Scientist. (laughs) Unfortunately, his personal story ended in tragedy because in 1952, he was convicted for having a sexual relationship with a man, which was illegal at the time. And then he was sadly found dead a couple of years later. He was only pardoned in 2013, some 60 years after his death. But there's no doubt that we have so very much to thank him for for all of his contributions to society and computing. We wanted to mark Turing's birthday, and we noticed that on the new £50 note, there's a picture of Turing and something called the Pilot Ace Machine. So to talk about that, we're joined by JT Janssen, who's Chief Scientist of Britain's National Physical Laboratory, and that's where Turing worked and designed the machine. Uh, Thanks for joining us, JT. So please, can you tell us about the Pilot Ace? Because... I hadn't heard of this, actually, and I expect most people haven't heard of it. No, that's right. It's, it's something which has not been talked about a lot, I think. The work uh, Turing started to do at NPL in 1945 directly builds on the work he did during the war at Bletchley Park. And after the war, he joined NPL and sort of took that work further and started to develop the first automatic calculating engine, ACE. Now. They designed that computer because they wanted to do um, differential uh, calculations, partial differential calculations to solve them for industrial design. At MPL at the time, there was a ship tank for designing the hulls of ship and a wind tunnel for designing airplanes. And for that, of course, you needed to do very complex numerical calculations. Can you sort of simply tell us how it worked? I mean, is it valves and, you know, mechanical computer type thing? Yeah, I mean, we all know that computers work with bits, so ones and zeros. And, and these days, of course, bits are are represented in a computer by an on and an off current, uh, a one and a zero. At that time, of course, they didn't have transistors well, well before the invention of the transistors. So they had other ways of, of, of making this electronic state, if you like. And that that's what they did in, in the ACE calculating machine. So they were very elaborate mechanisms of of making a a bit and making a memory element of various uh, complexities. I mean, it was a continuous 
uh, process of improvement. There was pilot ace, then there was ace, then he left MPL and went to Manchester University and bought, built the next version of the of the machine. And and this this whole process has kept on developing. And and has it led directly to where we are now? I mean, is, could you call it the the forerunners of modern computers? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, some of the early ideas which um, Turing put into his scientific papers about calculating machines and machine intelligence is at the basis of all modern computing. So how is his work still relevant today? Well, p- particularly uh, some of the papers which Turing wrote were about can machines think and is a machine intelligent? And today there's a lot of discussion around artificial intelligence we, we our computing power is increasing all the time and computers can do more and more things and are making decisions for us. And really, some of his early thinking is really being tested today. Can machines really think? It's a question which people are trying to answer at the moment. And there are lots of ways of testing that. There is this, um, it's called the Turing test, where yeah. you speak to a person and, and a computer, you can't see which uh, who is who, and you have to determine whether who's the computer and who's the machine. It's a very powerful test, which he devised. So at the NPL in the 50s, it's a bit of a golden era, wasn't it? Because as, as well as Turing, there was another um, kind of legendary computer figure there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the, the 50s was a very prolific time uh, at NPL. So Alan Turing uh, worked for some time with uh, Donald Davis, who, again, is a scientist, which is he's very little known. But he invented the method, method called packet switching, and packet switching is the basis of how information is exchanged on the internet. It's it's not widely known, but again, it's it's something which has been developed in the UK by by UK scientists. Those were the days. <laughs> but we could still afford it. <laughs> Time out. We wanted to tell you about a new podcast we're really into. Yes, The Conversation Weekly is produced by the Conversations Global Network. So you know The Conversation has academics from all over the world writing about their latest research. This is them talking about it. Yeah, it's The Conversation in podcast form and covers a variety of topics ranging from environment to health right across the sciences. The one I just heard was all about the exploration and exploitation of the oceans. So who is making money from our oceans and is that sustainable? That episode also has a piece on why women in Brazil who lived through the Zika outbreak are now avoiding getting pregnant during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Conversation Weekly is all about scholars talking about brand new research and about how the world works. Search for The Conversation Weekly or get it wherever you get your podcasts or go to theconversation.com slash new scientist to find out more. Now, Ever since Darwin graced the world with his brilliant ideas, we viewed life as competitive. The idea of a struggle for existence has largely dominated the way that we tend to think about evolution. Members of different species compete, and that's the engine that drives natural selection. And we're also very familiar with the idea of the selfish gene as an explanation of evolution that emphasizes competition as well. But as we've often reported in New Scientist, that's not the whole story by any means. Nicola Raihani is a professor of evolution and behavior at University College London and specializes on social behavior in humans and other animals. And she's just written a book called The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World. Rowan chatted with her about her work. My whole research career has been aimed at answering this sort of 
what seems like a deceptively simple question, which is why do individuals ever pay costs to help other individuals? And the reason why I and many other evolutionary biologists think that that's an interesting question is that it seems to sort of contradict our understanding of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection with its emphasis on self-interest and a struggle for survival and every individual out for themselves. So if we have that sort of narrow view of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, then all these examples that we see in the natural world of cooperation of individuals helping one another seem to be a bit of a puzzle. And so lots and lots of scientists, and me included, have been very interested in trying to reconcile how we can understand those examples of cooperation that we see with this Darwinian view of life on Earth. And so that's what I've spent my research career sort of doing in various different species and in different places all around the world. And I think now in particular, it's become so obvious to us just how reliant we are on one another and just what a social species we are. And that has really been hammered home to us by the current situation that we're in, whereby, you know, we've been asked to do the most difficult thing for a social species to do, which is to stay apart from one another and to, you know, to take actions that feel very alien to us, but that will help us to protect one another if we do them correctly. In the book, you look at cooperation at lots of different levels and different examples. Give us some um, examples that stick out for you as fantastic and maybe disarming examples of cooperation. Okay, so one of my favourites concerns an example of parental care and specifically maternal care in a species called the black lace spider. Now, it probably, you know, for a species like us that invests very heavily in our offspring, it might not be that obvious to appreciate that actually parental care is a form of cooperation. It's an investment that parents make to help their offspring to prosper and to survive. And, you know, not all species do this. Some species just leave their offspring to it and they don't really invest very much in them at all. Uh, We're at the end of the scale where we do invest quite a bit in our offspring, but we don't invest as much as this particular spider that I was going to tell you about, where when the mother hatches the babies, which are called spiderlings, um, she also hatches a clutch of unfertilized eggs for the babies for their first meal. So the babies get busy and they eat all those unfertilized eggs. And once they've finished eating those, the mother starts doing something strange, vibrating her body in a strange way. And that galvanizes these spiderlings to actually begin feasting on the mother herself. And the mother really makes the ultimate sacrifice for her offspring by allowing them, and not just allowing them, actually encouraging them to devour her. And by doing this, she gives them, you know, the very best start in life or what you might think of as a a spidery silver spoon. (laughs) Lovely. Okay, so talking about humans now, how do you do field work on humans? Okay, so most of the work I do on humans actually doesn't involve going to remote places like when I was working on non-human species. And a lot of the work we do to understand human behavior can be done from behind a computer screen. And so we made use of a data set of fundraisers who had held a page for the 2014 London Marathon. 
So these people were people that were running the marathon and they'd asked people in their social network to sponsor them by donating to the charity that they were supporting. And we used the data from those online fundraising pages to look at a hypothesis that potentially people use visible donations to charity as a way to signal something about themselves. And specifically, we thought we might see men competing with other men to make larger donations, and particularly when they were giving on the pages of attractive female fundraisers. And so to test that, what we did was we had the fundraisers' photos rated for attractiveness by an independent panel. And then we looked at what happened on these fundraising pages after a large donation arrived on the page. And so often on a Just Giving page, the average donation size is about £20. And so a large donation we defined in our sample as being at least twice what was normal for that page, or or at least £50. And then we're interested in what happens after that £50 donation lands. Does everybody raise the stakes to the same extent? Or are men more likely to get into these sort of giving competitions? And what we found is that a bit of both in a way. So when a big donation lands on a page, everybody ups their game and everybody gives a bit more. And so for about a £50 large donation prompts about an additional £10 from every subsequent donor. So there's already a positive effect of getting a large donation on the page. But when that large donation is made by a man, and when they're donating on the page of a, of the most attractive female fundraisers, then other men that subsequently donate tend to give about £40 extra. So there's a much bigger effect size among the male donors. And that's consistent with this idea that men are potentially competing with one another to make large donations in these very public settings and, and doing so in, in a way that fits this idea of signalling to an, a potentially attractive audience. Let's uh, maybe try and to, to sum up what you want to take people to take away from, from the book. What do you want people to remember? I think the key thing to take away from the book is that we're just one of many social species that lives on this planet and that we can learn a lot about the human condition by looking not only at the obvious examples like chimpanzees and gorillas, but at species that potentially we've never even heard of, like cleaner fish and pied babblers, and many other species that also live a social life. And so I think the big emphasis of the book is in just how much we have in common with other species that live on this planet. And that helps us really to then see what it is that actually sets us apart. That was Rowan chatting with Nicola Raihani, whose new book, The Social Instinct, is out now. Yeah, there was loads more that we talked about that we don't have time for here about cleaner fish and naked mole rats um, and a lovely ant species called Temnothorax. That's the sci-fi alert, which means there's something happening in the news that has already appeared in science fiction. So what have you got this week, Matt? So this week we've got quantum encryption. Uh, <laughs> do you want to expand on that a little bit? 
So if you if you want to send something securely, safe and prying eyes, then then you have to encrypt it, and that doesn't necessarily imply anything nefarious. We all we all rely on encryption for online shopping or private email, all sorts of things. And encryption relies on on having a private key, and one of the problems with that is that you have to share this private key safely, and anyone who gets hold of it gets hold of your encrypted messages too, basically. And something from the weirdness of the quantum world is going to help us solve this problem. Yeah, quantum mechanics offers a quite a nifty but slightly counterintuitive solution. If we fire single photons along a fiber optic cable, then we can encode information basically in the phase of those photons. And because of the weird way that quantum mechanics works, any any measurement of that photon along the way changes it basically so we we know if it's been intercepted and that makes it the perfect way to share a private key because we we know whether or not someone else has has intercepted it but there's another problem photons get lost in fiber optic cables which is fine if you're sending traditional data because you can encode each bit with a big lump of photons and then most of them will make it to the other end but if we're talking about single photons like we use in quantum mechanics then they can get lost very easily that means that the distance between the sender and the receiver has to be quite short so is there a way around this? Yeah, Chinese researchers have found an interesting way to get around it. You, you can put a hub in the middle and that helps you increase the distance from the, from the sender to the receiver. The central hub doesn't have to know what information is being sent, but it can enable each end to know what's being sent. So they use this sort of trick to share a quantum key and, uh, and you don't even have to trust whoever runs that hub in the middle. So how far a distance can they do this across? That's that's the impressive thing with this paper. They they do it with um, 511 kilometers of fiber optic cable, um, and it's actually strung between two cities, not not just coiled up in a in a laboratory, and with a with that central hub and a third city in the middle. And experiments like this, they they're all sort of nudging us closer towards a quantum internet where security is guaranteed by these private quantum keys. We've done a whole feature on that, and we'll post a link to the story in the show notes. And for the sci-fi link, I'm going with Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, uh, which is not quite sci-fi perhaps, but uh, let's let's gloss over that. Uh, there's two characters in that called Galivespians, and they've got an instrument called a lodestone resonator that can send secure messages using quantum entanglement. We're going to interrupt from the US and hijack the next story. I'm Chelsea, New Scientist's US news editor, And I'm joined here with Leah Crane, our space reporter. Hey, Leah. Hi. You have a story for us about aliens, right? Well, the possibility of aliens and the search for extraterrestrial life, I suppose. Yes. And if they're out there, they actually could be watching us. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not necessarily terrifying, but a new study has shown which worlds we know of out there could see us. And the reason that's important is that those are ones we should probably also be looking at for signs of life and intelligent life. Yeah. How did we find these places? So what we do is the researchers assumed that any life on these other worlds would look for planets the same way we do. And our main method is called the transit method, where we look for worlds that pass in front of their star and create a dip in their star's light. So there's a very sort of specific geometry that Earth and that distant star and that star's planet have to have so that we can see that little dip in the light along the orbit. So what the researchers did to find these planets is see which stars have that alignment with Earth and our sun. 
So they would see us passing in front of our sun and creating a little shadow. Yeah, exactly. And how many planets are we talking about here? So we can't see all the planets that are out there. So this research looked into the stars that are in the right place to see us. Okay. And any planets orbiting those stars would also be aligned right. But they found a ton. Um, (laughs) So right now there are 1,402 stars that are aligned right that they could see us transit in front of the sun. And in the last 5,000 years, there's an additional 313. And then the next 5,000 years, there's an additional 319 that get added to those lists. So a lot of places could, in theory, see us. Wow, that is a lot. And I assume (laughs) there's likely some planets around those stars where potential alien life might exist. Do we know how many planets are around or in those star systems, I suppose? Yeah, so statistically... In terms of planets in general, there's probably the same number of planets as stars, so around 2,000. But based on what we know statistically about how common different types of planets are, there are probably about 508 rocky planets, meaning rocky meaning like Earth or Mars rather than Jupiter or Neptune, that orbit their stars in the habitable zone. And the habitable zone is important because it is the precise area around a star where it's not too cold for liquid water to exist because it would freeze or too hot because it would boil away. And liquid water is so important for life as we know it. As you know, that we consider that the area where life might in theory arise. Sure. And would I recognize the names of any of those planets? I mean, are these places we've heard of before? Yeah. So the one big one that I I think you might recognize is the TRAPPIST-1 system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that one has seven rocky planets, which is why it was such a big deal when it was discovered. And four of those are in the habitable zone. So those planets can't see us yet, but they will starting in the year uh, 3663. And they'll be able to for more than 2000 years. So, you know, fingers crossed that we're still around. (laughs) Yeah, if we stick around. I mean, and that's actually pretty close to us, right? Isn't that only about 40 light years away? Only. Yep. (laughs) 40 light years on a cosmic scale is pretty nearby. And in fact, some of these star systems are even closer. And even the very farthest ones, because of the way that the sample was set up, are only about 325 light years away, which is, you know, sounds really, really far. But in cosmic terms, it's still pretty close. Cool. So that means aliens on these planets could potentially catch a glimpse of Earth if they have advanced to the level of technology that we have now, right? Yeah, and, and they would have a pretty long time to, to advance their technology, relatively speaking, because the average amount of time that these stars could see Earth out of the 10,000 years that the researchers studied is 6,914 years. So that's maybe not huge on the scale of evolution, but it's big as a percent of 10,000. Yeah, if there's intelligent life there and they have technology at all, they could, you know, make telescopes in that time. Yeah. And then could they potentially see anything other than that a planet is here, that Earth is here? Yeah. So if they have similar technology to what we have and to what we're about to have with our next generation of big telescopes, they might be able to see that Earth has life. And the closer they are, the more detail they could spot. So, for example, 75 um, of these stars are close enough that they'd be able to pick up the radio waves that we've been sending out in all directions for the last hundred years. So in a few years, some of them might be listening to this very podcast. 
Maybe, you never know. <laughs> well, with that, we'll hand it back to Rowan and Tiffany. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to this week's guests, Adam and Matt. Remember, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20. And that gives you audio versions of Mag Stories 2 with news and features. That's it. Thanks again and see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.